Hi, it's Michael Anthony. And welcome to The Meat of It, a carnivore podcast about life. My guest today is Philip Meese, the creator of The Carnivore Bar, a delicious on-the-go carnivore snack that really holds to a high standard that I can stand behind. Um, thanks for joining me, Philip. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. I, I don't know where you want to start with your story, but um, my understanding is, uh, why don't we go all the way back to, I believe you were raised in Mongolia. What the heck? Yeah. So uh, that's just a fascinating starting point. Um, yeah. As a child, my parents were in Mongolia as missionaries. So they went to go to help rebuild uh, Mongolia, which was swallowed by the Soviet Union. Right. And uh, it was basically a third world country with currency collapse and the, the whole nine yards where they're trying to build from scratch, build out of the rubble, a whole country. And my dad is a physician and he was going to help and had a clinic and was, you know, doing doing his best to help them rebuild. And the, the, the takeaway for us is that they eat a very high fat animal diet that's full of saturated fat, um, which we were very concerned of at the time. It was the 90s. Right. I wasn't concerned, obviously. I couldn't care less at five. I just was there <laughs> along for the ride. But um, I was healthier there eating these like high fat animal foods primarily uh, than I've ever been in my life. And so it's this big journey of like coming back to my roots and realizing that these ancestral cultures um, really had some important things, right. That we've kind of glossed over in our, you know, technical modern world with all these fancy gizmos and gadgets. We really kind of lost sight of what people have been eating for millennia. Mm -hmm. And so it was an interesting uh, experience as a kid. I came back to the States at 10 and I was immediately stricken with asthma and allergies and I was fat and sick and I was kind of a chunky kid the rest of my life. So that continued into college and I started moving and found CrossFit and uh, worked my way out of asthma got off three different kinds of medications and everyone said that's incurable. Wow. It's like, well, if I just run, it sure feels incurable. <laughs> but if I lift weights, uh, and I was at the time I was eating paleo, I was trying to clean up my diet. And I was like, if I eat meat and I lift weights, it turns out that, uh, I, you know, I don't have to have asthma. <laughs> so I was right. like, awesome. So now I have control of my destiny and the financial markets kind of crash. Hmm. So I graduated in May of 2009. Oh, and I man. was like, as a theater major. Oh, man, great. <laughs> Nothing but prospects. Yeah. And no experience. <laughs> yeah. Zero. Wow. So I'm in liberal arts. I have this liberal arts degree and I have, you know, no plan and no, no route forward because I was going to do internships mm -hmm. and those internships dried up and they, they vanished overnight in the last semester of my degree. And so 
you know, I was, I was out there digging ditches. That was the job I could find. Literally and, uh, digging mm-hmm. ditches. Yeah. Yeah. Drainage ditches. So wow. I was working for like a contractor, but I didn't have any skills, mm-hmm. none. So, I mean, you know, you know how to dig a hole. <laughs> <laughs> I can figure out how to dig a hole. And yeah. so that's what my job was, uh, after college. And so I was like, well, man, like I just gotten this new lease on life. I'm healthy again. So it's the first time since Mongolia. I'm like, wow, I've got to hold on to this. I thought, you know, I thought once you got sick, you, it was just a steady downhill slump until they put you in a nursing home and it's over. Yeah. That's what we're told. Right. And I was like, oh, crud. So uh, I wanted a job that would keep me in shape because my new understanding of movement is that if you move, you stay alive. So (laughs) your body needs good food and it needs movement. And so I thought I understood what good food meant and I knew I needed movement. So I joined the military. This is our big push. 2009, um, they'd even recalled soldiers who had been let go. They called them back. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the final surge in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now that we recently left. um, Yeah. Yeah. But that's when I joined the army so that I could stay fit, so I could stay healthy. Wow. And what happened was they fed me crap food and I stayed up all night. And I got addicted to caffeine, stimulants, and the worst kind of preserved food imaginable. Just trash, junk, food-like substance. Yeah. And so from there, I was like, well, dang, like we got to do a better job of putting like real whole food. Oh, I only yeah. eat real food. Absolutely. <laughs> got to put real food and make it shelf stable somehow. Otherwise, you know, we're sending all of our soldiers over there to get sick and we're burning through the human capital, the human talent way too quickly. Like I was derailed, still am kind of derailed from the dysbiosis that I received in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. They put me on broad spectrum antibiotics for the malaria and malaria has killed a, a very, very high level of soldiers specifically mm-hmm. and people in general. Yeah. You know, the evolutionary pressure, the sickle cell anemia and all the developments there, that, that is a thing because malaria is such a lethal uh, pathogen. And so on the one hand, I, I want to do the modern medicine like prophylactic against this pathogen, mm-hmm. but I also need a microbiome you right. know, to digest my food. So we went with prophylactic but we we're on it for longer than is medically uh, recommended, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Recommended. We're on it for a whole year straight every day. And mm, so wow. that just wipes you out in, in a way that the soldiers who disobeyed orders and didn't take their malaria pills did the mm-hmm. best. But How you know, that get away of, with that. Oh, well, see, that rubs me the wrong <laughs> way because medically as a soldier, I'm like, well, if a, if a rule comes down, if this is an intervention to keep us all safe and healthy and happy and, you know, effective, uh, you know, we should do it unless we have a good reason not to. Right. But it just made people feel sick. Mm. So they stopped taking. And I was in a, 
I was in a group that basically, uh, they wanted me to check. So I was the medic. So they had me watch people swallow it. Wow. So we got to a level of distrust and silliness where I was inspecting people who outranked me taking the pill. Wow. Even your superior. And you, so you, you have to say to, to the, what the sergeant, uh, let me see under your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Things like that. But you have to do it respectfully because I was, wow. a, I yeah, was of course. a specialist. So yeah. it was a weird situation and it felt very, you know, uh, dy- dystopian. It was like, oh, this is, this is awkward and, and not desirable. Eventually enough people complained that we discontinued that. But like for solid months, I was, I was making sure that people administer it because the, the lack of adherence to that order was extremely widespread. And it turns out the people who didn't listen did the best. But this is anti-malaria, right? Correct. I mean, the risk is, so, I mean, the, the cost benefit analysis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're into these, one of these, uh, horrible dilemmas. You know, you want to take malaria seriously. There's lots of people who died. We actually got a case of malaria, what Mm. looked to be malaria, but we didn't dare. This wasn't my unit. It was a unit that was cohabiting the same little outpost. Right. Um, They, one of their soldiers got malaria and we Mm. didn't, you know, because he wasn't taking his pills, but they were basically giving him fluids and praying over him because they didn't want to get into trouble. Right. Because if they reported a case of malaria, then the next question is, why haven't your soldiers been taking the prophylaxis? Mm -hmm. And when they find out they haven't been taking it, then, you know, a whole long list of people (laughs) get in trouble. Right. For the command climate, uh, following orders, blah, 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 on and on and on. So he just wrote it out. Like rather than rather than seek professional care, we just gave fluids and prayed for him. For a fatal disease, potentially fatal. Could be, right. Yeah. But it's, but man, you're getting into these choices where I left the service. Um, well, I left Afghanistan in 2012. So I've been struggling with dysbiosis for nine years. Wow. I, I, these things, I, when I feel sensitive sometimes, I, then I look at someone like a, a Michaela Peterson. She's the exactly. ultimate, right? She, she had, she ate an apple and was crippled again. It was hard. Yeah. And the way she ate it too, she peeled the skin off. Right. Then cut out all of the core <laughs> material, then like mushed it up, boiled it, and was sick. It's I like, forgot all about those steps. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, wow. It's like you, you think that would de- maybe detoxify it a bit. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no it's glyphosate, like, no. Uh, yeah. So, you know, people are really, really sensitive. And that was one of the reasons that I, I made this because, you know, we can't change, we can't change the battlefield. We can't change the mission. We can't change all the dangers that we have to be in. And that's, you know, that's the job. Yeah. You know, we can question as citizens, whether or not Afghanistan was a good choice or a bad choice. Um, but as a soldier, you're done questioning. You signed, you swore your oath, you're done. Yeah. Now it's just like execution. So since we can't change the mission, we can't change the circumstances. The only thing we can do is bring better equipment and better tools. Yes. Yes. And, and so 
not having food that is hard to digest um, is key to that. It's paramount to success. Like if you want to be able to absorb the nutrients that are shelf stable, that are bioavailable, that make you feel good and not hungry, you know, you need to be eating real food. Absolutely. You know, I actually had a carnivore bar before this uh, conversation, maybe about half an hour ago. Oh, yeah. I needed a snack. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I ran out of my pork rinds. I ate them all. I have some sardines, some kippers, but I don't I didn't feel like eating those. So I, st- I did have one more carnivore bar left. And believe it or not, it was the honey one. I finally I went ahead and ate it. Oh, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> it was very tasty, not too sweet, but I since my palate has been reset by carnivory, I really tasted that honey, that little tiny, the three carb, three grams of carbs. Yep. And uh, wow. It's controversial whether or not to add carbs or not. I, I'm not a big fan of that. You know that. Yeah. I debated it for a really long time. Um, But it's essentially, it's a very expensive food to make. You know, the reason that you're not seeing a bunch of, you're seeing jerky companies, but you're not seeing uh, pemmican companies, mm-hmm. or if they are, they're kind of going out of business or redefining what pemmican is mm-hmm. because pemmican is shelf stable. Right. Just dried meat and fat. Yeah. So the other two people who have attempted are U.S. Wellness Meats, and they make an undried uh, high fat pemmican. It's Do they actually add, um, other stuff like, like spices and no? Good. They make a honey berry version. Mm-hmm. And they make a plain version. And that plain version is perfect keto macros. And it's really, really, really high quality beef. But it's not shelf stable. Right. So for me, that, you know, that wouldn't meet the objective that I'm going for. Yeah. And then um, Frankie's Free Range Meats did it for a while. They were making pemmican. But they couldn't uh, solve the texture problem. It was right. kind of a melty mess. Yeah. And that's, that is a really big, that's a really big thing. It's like, you've got to make it uh, somewhat palatable because <laughs> you're competing with industries that spend billions of dollars on making their food hyper palatable. Mm-hmm. You have to be starting with something that's reasonably accessible to people who have been, you know, just spoiled rotten. Absolutely. Yeah, people don't realize how much work goes into programming them or uh, maybe not just programming them, but also uh, designing these food products to be extremely tempting. And so they uh, they have scientists that work. Uh, their full time job is to design flavors using chemicals and yep. all that kind of stuff. And there are people uh they're doing uh, science. I, I mentioned this every now and then the scientific studies to, to know which colors make you want to eat more. And so they put those on the packaging. It, everything's very scientifically designed to hook us on these processed foods. Yeah. Everything is designed for profits. Profit, and yeah. so I find myself in a weird spot because, you know, I'm sensitive to everything else. And so I really can't chase profits. I have to chase function. Mm-hmm. You know, I am trying to make a food that people like Michaela can eat that people who have autoimmune issues can eat. And that will satisfy the soldier requirement, the shelf stability requirement, because it, it doesn't really solve any of those problems if it's, if it's going to be perishable. Cause I mean, right. meat's relatively affordable. Why not just have 
you know, your deep freezer in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. No, that's fine. But then yeah. what if you want to leave your kitchen? Mm-hmm. Or what if you just want a quick snack? Yeah. But you know, what if you're really hungry in the moment and you have to run out right now and you're not going to be, you don't want to fast. Or if you're traveling, traveling, you know, you're traveling, you're trying to eat out, you're trying to avoid seed oils and mm-hmm. everything is cooked in soy or canola. And so you're trying to ask for special instructions on the grill and like, maybe they get it. Maybe they don't and like, um, yeah. But how many times eating out those of us who have tried eating out as carnivores, um, have you nailed the satiation? <laughs> it's tough. That's real tough. You know, I can barely so, find, especially fat. I can't find sometimes some lean, whatever, but yeah. And so, you know, you spend 20, 30 bucks on a meal and then you throw away like half the sides, half the calories. Yeah. And you're like, huh, I'm a little hungry. It's like, well, what I do is I use the carnivore bar to, to fill those gaps. So if I want to eat and still have some kind of social life, Mm-hmm. I'll eat a carnivore bar in the way and keep one in my pocket or one in the car, you know? And so I'll eat whatever people offer me. I'll be polite. I won't eat contaminants that will hurt me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have, I just fill the gaps with carnivore bars because that's generally the component that people can't, uh, they can't handle. It's that high animal fat content that gives that satiation, yes. the leptin signaling of like, okay, I'm full. Right. Right. Yeah. So please uh, tell us more about the carnivore bar. Cause I don't feel like people are, I'm sure they're trying to imagine it, but anyone who's not thoroughly familiar, in fact, maybe I'll try to, I haven't done this before. I'm going to try sharing my screen and going to your website. So, oh, cool. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I kind of started as off as people already know about it, but um, yeah, it's based off of native American food called pemmican yes i think it is a cree word and they used it to travel and so it's a very very labor intensive um way of preserving meat you take dried meat sun-dried or smoked um so that's like a whole day right there um cutting the beef into very thin strips and drying it in the sun Mm -hmm. and then you break it up to dust with a mortar and pestle wow that's how you do that (laughs) okay that's how you get those little crunchy bits well so we've we've upgraded from mortar and pestle but uh it's one of those high labor um kind of products that we've had to redesign from scratch how to make it so right. ancestrally it was made with mortar and pestle, like just obscene amounts of work. Oh, I have a mortar and pestle. I know how much work that is. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you have all this fluffy dried beef, fluffy if you've done it correctly. Then you render the tallow. You can see the 37 grams of fat. That's just hunks of grass-fed, grass-finished tallow. Right. And that's mixed together. They mix it together um, basically in a 50-50 ratio. So it's, it's a handful, very unscientific. It's a handful of dried and a handful of rendered fat. You mix it up into these balls. And the balls, um, 
decrease the surface area that's being exposed to oxygen. Right. Because the oxygen can acidify the fat. And so to further safeguard it, they put it in a rawhide bag and then they seal it with tallow on the, from the top. So it's protected again from oxygen and moisture that might be in the ambient air or it gets splashed or, you know, rained on your travel bag uh, in the 1700s, way before any kind of refrigeration. So, you know, I think a lot of people are very familiar with, um, like adding spices, hermectant, adding like salting fish, yeah, different things like that. But um, sometimes that's a little tricky because once you've salted, like salted pork or sugared ham, mm-hmm. um, you've used this kind of drying agent that sucks the moisture out. Um, then you're stuck with a lot of that agent, whether it's heavy spices mm-hmm. or you know. 20 times your daily requirement of salt or, you know, in the sugared <laughs> ham, you're getting, you're getting uh, sugar in your meat yeah. that you didn't necessarily intend on, but you were using to keep it shelf stable. So really pemmican is the, is the best carnivore food for people who want to make like actual, like old school, zero carb food with no contaminants uh, shelf stable because you're just using moisture as the single variable. Mm-hmm. You're just removing the moisture and then you're sealing that away from further moisture acquisition or oxygen exposure. That's what the, the wrapper is, is for. It's, mm-hmm. it's a metallized film that keeps the uh, moisture and oxygen out. Right. So the bar itself is, a, I, I would describe it's like a, hmm. It's hard to describe the texture, but uh, I know you, you've worked hard on the on the uh, consistency of the, yeah. the tallow that you use, and uh, it it is a good balance because it's not you know it's not too one way or another. I mean, like like you've said, if you made it if you made it out of all suet, it would just be like chewing on a candle, and <laughs> that's the only thing I can think of when I try to eat suet. I was just thinking today, should I order more suet? But I just don't like that feeling. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting. People think they like to simplify how complicated the world is, you know, and it's not simple and it's, it's never going to be it. Every single square inch of fat on an animal is nutritionally compositionally different. It's like, if you take it from the back, if you take it from the the chest, if you take it from the kidney, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the fat that deposits intermuscular and marbles like that, every single (laughs) gram of fat every single location has a unique composition and so if you take from the kidney fat you're going to have higher and different vitamins and you're going to have higher and different uh ratios of fat that affect the melting point and the texture and the flavor Mm -hmm. so if you've ever like made like short ribs oh this last night yeah so you get that belly belly fat it melts away really fast, has a really low melting point, but it is, I mean, it's, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. There's something about belly fat. That's really good. Like everyone has had bacon. They're like, there's yeah. something about this fat right here. That's just <laughs> something else. Yep. And so, you know, that's why people crave um, certain kinds of fats from certain parts of the animal or like the ribeye fat tastes different than uh, fat that, 
like a little bit of excess fat on the round. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's just different places taste differently. We grade those steaks um, higher and they cost way more per pound. And it's because, well, they taste different, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that there's this horribly cascading, complex, uh, evolutionary, um, you know, conversation between our food and us and our bodies and the biochemistry that's unfolding. Yeah. It's not just, can it taste or pass? You know, I was watching your live stream about beyond meat and the ingredients and it got me thinking about this. Yeah. And, uh, you can fool a human palate, but you can't fool the human biochemistry. Amen to that. Yeah, so it's not going to make you feel good. Yeah, that's a really important point. You you seem to because you know a lot about. I mean, you you were a medic, so I mean, I guess you are a medic. So you're a medical professional, and so and you're aware of a lot of the science behind a lot of this stuff. That I mean it's way more complicated than I'm aware. I mean, I'm aware that it's complicated, but uh, I know a few things enough to get me by and enough to explain mm-hmm. things to people. But I don't know. It's interesting how you both simplify everything. I mean, you're, you're using all this complicated science and complicated processes to create the, a simple solution. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you, you're, you also tend to bring simple information, but you know so much about, What's really going on behind the scenes? I mean, how do you balance that out? Well, it feels like I'm going crazy a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of information to track mm-hmm. and synthesizing that information and then delivering something that's palatable is, you know, not only what I'm doing with the carnivore bar, trying to deliver, you know, life-saving nutrition um, that's shelf-stable and nutritious that sustains human life. But also in my, uh, in my information, I've struggled massively with, you know, how much to share, you know, about like the process. I mean, our ingredients Mm. are beef, tallow, and salt. Yeah. They are. Sounds simple. They're really simple. There's no secret ingredient um, that we can keep as intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So if we go to the work of proving that people want pemmican, and yeah. we design it from scratch and we incur all the R&D costs. There's no way to keep that, you know, and make that into a profitable business. Someone who a million dollar corporation will say, oh, well, thank you for validating this product. We'll just go ahead and start copying it. Hmm. Could happen. So, but I don't think, I think they would be so tempted. They would just end up putting, it would be in, uh, their honey bar would be all honey. Yeah. <laughs> True. There would be no meat. I don't think that. I think you hold everything to such a standard that, uh, I mean, just no one could really compete. I don't think because they wouldn't want to. I'm hoping that's the case. Already, it's one of those uh, technology-driven processes that, because of the needs of the community and the sensitive people that we're serving, you know, we've had to design things that no one else has bothered to design. we were asked to talk to this R&D company uh, full of, you know, PhDs, mm-hmm. PhDs who do food engineering. And they passed. They said it, it was a two functional food. Whoa. So I had an offer for help. Um, 
but they turned me down because it's basically too difficult to improve upon a food that already has the functionality that we have without mm -hmm. adding, you know, palatability chemicals. Because what you do is like, if you went to your kitchen and you were eating the standard American diet and you made, you know, an amazing brownie, but you use like all natural ingredients, this R&D company would show you how to save like tons and tons of money by reformulating into processed junk. Right. That would increase the palatability, increase your profit margin, increase the shelf stability. And so they would show you how to reformulate using junk. And that's what all of our, all of our food scientists do with their time. They're, they're making a Dorito that's more orange and more crispy. And they're making food that's, that has better colors, but mm -hmm. not better nutrition. Because that's what they're being paid by most people to do. Yeah, that's amazing. You you got to see the inside a bit there. You, you from the inside, you saw how this monster works. Exactly, and I see it from the supply chain side for all the time. Hmm. There are crazy things happening right now in supply chain. But as as somebody in the alternative health community knows, there's this you know kind of fear mongering in the mainstream media about a lot of different things. And yeah. people are getting way over political with their um, assertions, you know, moving away from science, moving away from objective shared values and shared truth to yes. this kind of uh, polarizing, everything has, you know, is referring back to the political side that they want to win. Mm -hmm. And so given that there's all this um, intentional, intentional fog of war, it's really difficult to, to lay your finger on what's worth being concerned over and what's not. Yes. And so you have all these people who are very concerned about global warming and um, obviously the pandemic and what the pandemic future is, but you know, as a meat eater, we kind of have this inside scoop that you can survive off just eating meat. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole fear that, oh, well, the farmland is, you know, disappearing. And meanwhile, we can have ruminants eating the grass almost anywhere on the planet and not worry about farmland, eat the ruminants and thrive. Yeah. And two thirds of all farmland um, is not, is not uh, viable for crops. Like it's only viable. Yeah. for animal agriculture. So there's this way that we're talking about the problems and, and just like the things that people are focusing on. People are focusing on carbon. And it's great that people are concerned because I do think that this, there's one planet and we ought to take care of it and not turn it into a garbage heap. Absolutely. But the things that they're focused on are the wrong things. They're mm -hmm. worried about the temperature but most, I think it's over 60% of the carbon dioxide in the air goes into the water. Hmm. I, I didn't even hear that. That's, that's so, good to know. There's so many, <laughs> so many facts to counter, you know, to, to counter what they claim. And yet it's being presented as the only way, which is the problem these days. Well, we don't. Yeah, yeah, totally. We don't know. We don't know how hot is a problem. Mm-hmm. 
it's likely that we're already past it. <laughs> but um, if most of the carbon goes into the water, you know, there are delicate life cycles, ecosystems that we have no idea what will happen. And just a frank and honest scientific literate conversation about science and, and what we don't know and how, how it would be appropriate to respond. You know, CO2, like uh, a lot of us drink carbonated water, LaCroix or whatever. Pellegrino. I, I like this one. I haven't had that one. Liquid death. That's sparkling water. Wow. I would have <laughs> assumed that was some kind of um, energy drink or something. You know, it's, it's goth sparkling water. It does look cool. But the, I wish I could find that over here. I would have definitely gotten some if I, I mean, I would have assumed it was an energy drink, so I wouldn't have seen it, <laughs> but I would like to try that. Someday. It's fun. It's just water. But um, I'm sure the, the thing is, is that CO2 raises the acidity in the water. Ah, yeah. So at a certain point, you know, there's a problem with overfishing and there's a problem with trophic collapse. Like right now we're fishing the krill out of the ocean to mm. feed to farm salmon. Wow. You know, so that's like the bottom that's right above like phytoplankton, but mm -hmm. 80% of the world's oxygen is made from little critters like, uh, phytoplankton and, um, the silicon, the diatoms. Yeah. So those little itty bitty things that uh, whales with their baleen filter out, those create most of the oxygen on the planet. You know, what range of CO2, of acidity, are they viable in? Right. Because yeah, <laughs> that's a real question. It's like, that is important. You know, the amount of fish in the ocean is not only fish, but it's also just like soil quality. Mm -hmm. It is also like the amount of fish poop that's in the water is biological compounds. These biological compounds have this cascading trophic effect. Like there needs to be a concern, you know, not for animals for the sake of animals, but animals for the sake of humans. Yeah. It's like, what do we need to survive? It's like, well, we need oxygen. We need water. We need meat. Those things we're pretty certain on. And it turns out, that we don't typically need vegetables. <laughs> no. no, those are a good backup plan if you need one. Right. But that is such a understated landmark discovery that you can survive on only meat. Yeah. Because as far as soldiers and exploration go, we're constantly thinking about what is the minimum? What is essential? Right. I, I was reading in, I think, The Fat of the Land, uh, by Wilhelmer uh, Stefansson, you know, I, I don't mm, know yeah. his first name I always get wrong, but uh, Stefansson, um, I think, addressed this. Uh, he, he had uh, charts in the book showing the the rations for the military, and he could see how the sugar just increased and increased. And yeah, and he had this uh, enlightening experience where he was eating a lot of fish. And dipping it in seal fat, mm -hmm. which is mammalian. So it has all the same uh, fat-soluble vitamins and nutrients that we need to keep humans alive. So he's dipping this fish into uh, seal fat and surviving off this basically high fat uh, and high quality protein. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is his like discovery that you could you could eat basically pemmican he was a huge fan yeah but that's um that's another crazy thing with the ocean the the seals um their fat is also toxin toxins are soluble in fat yeah so like we've all heard of like avoiding uh mercury Mm -hmm. things like that but there's also teflon and pfoas uh i forget what it stands for but it's basically it's basically teflon right and um they're finding it in the mammalian fat of breast milk of Eskimos. Wow. And so then that's leading to brain or damage. Inuit. I think they think they prefer Inuit. Just oh, be, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. So um, the Inuit are, they're experiencing this phenomenon where they're being asked not to breastfeed their children because they're getting brain damage from the toxins in the fat, which are excreted in the breast milk. Discouraged from doing the most natural thing in the world. Well, because they can't because it's dangerous because of some unnatural uh, thing that came into the diet or into really the, the environment. Exactly. It's yeah. it's down to the lipids. Like human survival, human mm-hmm. viability, reproduction is down to lipids. And there's really no one spending very much time <laughs> on making shelf stable animal nutrition that's high energy. Right. So it's really the lipids that make us human, that power our brain, that are literally physically making up our brain. Our okay. brains are 25% cholesterol by dry weight. Mm-hmm. The same thing we're worried about is it's high. Yep. It's like, there's a, there's a disconnect here. It's like, even if you're against fat as an energy source, you don't like keto. Okay, fair enough. It's also a building block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, get, it's essential. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I always kind of, I get into this thing where I, I, I ignore my macros and yeah. I think it's to my detriment because I'll eat more fat. Like last night I had short ribs mm-hmm. and I woke up earlier than I thought I would with more energy than I normally do. So, or that I, then I even, even expected. So, um, that just reminded me that, yeah, this, that was fattier than I usually, I usually have a lot of, um, I guess 80, 20 ground beef, Yeah. but, um, those short ribs, I mean, it was just two of them. And then I had, uh, a few, I had one pound of, of lamb burgers with that. So lamb and, uh, some, some beef short, a couple of beef short ribs, maybe a total of, I don't know, two pounds of meat and, uh, that fat is so satisfying. It, it really sounds is. delicious. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I have a texture thing, so I don't always oh, yeah? like, yeah, I don't always like that chewy, slimy fat. Ever since I was a kid, I would kind of, in fact, I, I did cut off a lot of the fat when I was a kid because I didn't like that taste or and cartilage, you know, even in chicken, the little tiny bits of cartilage that you oh, find yeah. kind of knowing, uh, feeling that in my teeth, I just hate it. And I still kind of feel weird about it. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's getting our, our macros, the right ratio for, for human health. It's, it's, it's a journey. It really is a journey. No matter how long you've been on it, there've been people overdoing it too much fat, not enough fat. It's endless debate on those Facebook groups. It's like, if you find what works for you, 
great. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you helped to simplify this whole thing by providing, a, I mean, you have the, the basic, the first carnivore bar, which is higher fat. And now you have a, a, a lower fat, higher protein one coming in. I don't know if, uh, is, is that something that's already part of the regular offering? The higher so protein? We did a Kickstarter. Um, our second Kickstarter to try to raise funds for the two new variants, the honey bar and the higher protein, because some people wanted a higher protein macros. Mm -hmm. Um, we couldn't go further than I think 60%, um, because it wouldn't stick together. It wouldn't hold together. So if you want jerky there, I recommend, (laughs) yeah, I recommend carnivore snacks. I think those are good. Their jerky is really, really clean and really, really uh, high quality. Um, but, you know, so we, we were trying to raise funds for that. And we were advised that we should set a really low goal. So that way we meet it in the first day. And everyone's really excited. Um, just being candid with you. Um, mm-hmm. We really needed closer to uh, $250,000. Wow. So... So it's a good thing you exceeded what you asked. I exceeded uh, $10,000, which was the low goal. Right, right, right. So I got... Yeah, it's better than... (laughs) Yeah, I guess. So I got 54, which is not bad. And it's a lot of original carnivores. It's a lot of the zero carb people. Yeah. So the zero carb people know the value of this product. I'm one of them. Yep. I got the, uh, the ammo box that you, <laughs> <the> <laughs> thank crazy, you so much. Yeah. That's exciting. But, I can't wait to get that. But so we were trying with the honey bar and the different macos to break into different, uh, communities. Yes. Um, and that didn't work out exactly how we planned. So we might go a little slower on the release of those new bars. So okay. if you, if you, uh, back to this campaign, you will have a unique chance to stock up on these variants. Uh, before they're commercially available for everyone else. Cool. Yeah. That's, and so that's, uh, I mean, of course, carnivorebar.com is your main site. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a link to the, I guess that the Kickstarter is over, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it's one of those things where it's hard to, it's hard to talk about. Like, I feel like a conflict of interest when I'm, I'm promoting the carnivore bar because I don't think there's anything of higher value as a carnivore. <laughs> if I get money, I will spend it on carnivore bars, right? On a whole stack of ammo boxes for myself and the people I love, because um, it's it's essentially priceless and it's the only only place in the world that they're being made. Yes, because it's it's very very difficult and it is. Uh, it's not a money-making enterprise. It is a life-making enterprise. Absolutely. So That's when right. it gets down to the last carnivore bar, it's like, it's not for sale for any amount of money. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you said that, uh, I think uh, people were trying to stockpile them and you had to turn them down. Yeah. So right. when things got crazy um, last April, uh, many people wanted hundreds of carnivore bars and we just couldn't we couldn't keep up um mm-hmm. and we ended up having to raise our prices which i didn't like to do i want this to be accessible 
but the equipment needed to do this the do this the right way without preservatives and without adding anything without you know using a bunch of plastic crap it's mm-hmm. like it is insanely insanely expensive um to do a startup this way yeah. you know it, if you look at the meat industry in general it's like 80 percent of america's beef is controlled by four companies and those four companies like uh cargill jbs tyson yep um i forget the last one but those four companies 80 percent of america's beef and they do so in 20 facilities hmm. just 20 facilities that's so nuts. hundreds of millions of dollars in every facility and they do the tonnage of meat that goes through those facilities is absolutely staggering. Yeah. And that's, that's how you make it profitable is you scale up in volume. So yeah, everything is going to a consolidated system where because the competition is consolidated and you're forced to consolidate. So right. it's, it's edging out small business and this is happening in every sector imaginable, whether yes. it's, you know, telecommunications or whatever, but for carnivores, meat seems re- you know, pretty important. Yeah. And so it's very difficult and cost prohibitive to make something new that has never been made before mm-hmm. because nobody is willing to help you because no one knows how to help you. Yeah. And because you're doing something new, that's very, very expensive. That's in a field that rewards consolidation and punishes small business. There's a limit to how low I can make the price uh, and just keep the lights on. Right. But I'm a true believer and I, I, I live this way. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's what we do. For me, the value of a carnivore bar is like, it's peace of mind, you know, mm-hmm. because we don't know what's going to happen in 2021 or um, the anti-meat agenda as I hear you talk about often and Sean Baker's talking about, it's like, good. I'm glad he's talking about it. Yeah. It's, it's top of my list. Now. I, I think it's the most important thing we can do is to spread the message that before the media takes over and puts all these uh, new fears into people's heads. Exactly. It, it's, and that's the hesitation again. It's like you, you should be afraid, but not about anything that the media is concerned about. You should be afraid of very different things for different reasons. It's like, you should take care of yourself. You should do what works for you. You should think ahead because if there's an economic downturn, these 20 facilities will not be able to keep up. Mm -mm. So meat prices are already up about 30%. 30. So, you know, it's a few dollars here, a few dollars there. You know, Facebook posts, I I keep seeing, like I keep going to the supermarket and seeing uh and it makes me want to cry when I see the meat prices. That was a, <laughs> that was a comment I saw on the world carnivore tribe. It's like, yeah, yeah it, stress on the supply chains is a really big threat to our way of life. Yes. And if you don't have something that's energy dense as well as self shelf staple, um, you'd be eating something other than meat. Yeah. Yeah, I keep saying there's no replacement. I mean, they're now they're trying to push this lab-grown meat. <clears throat> they call sure. it cultured meat, which I call petri dish meat now. And uh, we shouldn't even call it meat, but I guess it is technically it's uh, simulating meat. 
Well, they use a lot of meat to make it actually. They yeah. use a lot of bovine fetal tissue to make nope. that. It's not vegan, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, it is certainly not. It's basically stem cells from dead baby cows, mm. which is a really terribly inefficient, like cost inefficient way to make meat. It's like, yeah. wouldn't it just be more humane to let the cow live its life? And then, you know, cause a slaughtered cow basically has one bad day. Yeah. You're it right. lives in paradise with no predators and no threats, no responsibilities mm-hmm. frolicking in green fields and then has one bad day. And we thank it for giving us life and sustenance. Absolutely. But that's nature. It and it is, I heard you talk about this a lot, the, the death from the environmental destruction of raising GMO cereal grains. Yes, absolutely. I mean, even raising in an organic garden, you're going to have to kill some animals. You know, even, yep. even if it's an insect slugs, you're going to have to kill something to protect your, your plants that you want to eat. Exactly. And just, just taking up space, mm-hmm. like habitat loss is one of the biggest killers of animals today. So we are expanding into nature way, way faster than nature can replenish itself. Yeah, but look out. And I mean, Klaus Schwab is going to say, this is why we need all to be in smart cities and no one can have their own <laughs> separate house. Well, yeah. Well, it, he lives it, in a mansion or It's castle. hard to, to splice out you know, really horrible people can say things that are accurate and people who are really, really good can say things that are heinous. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's no algorithm for thought and free thinking, which I, I love your channel, that you're such an advocate of liberty and Thank you. personal responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Liberty and responsibility go hand in hand. A lot of people think that, I mean, in fact, when I was growing up, I would always say, I think anarchism is probably the best way to go. Anarchism, except I don't trust enough people to be anarchists because <laughs> you have to be responsible to be an anarchist. You have to take care of yourself and take care of your stuff, take care of your community. And uh, yeah, but I think that if people were given that opportunity, we would rise to that occasion. I really do. Certainly um, more than the system that says it's got everything under control and then does a bad job of it. It's- yeah. Our institutions, no matter what party you're from, have certainly let us down. Yeah. With, I feel like we're, yeah. With mixed messages, contradictions, um, you know, is our vaccines effective or are they not effective? Do you still need to wear a mask? Do they not need a mask if you got it? It's like, even if you're wildly for these things, mm-hmm. you want your government agencies to have a plan. Like, yeah just do a good job and lie to us. Like be consistent, please. <laughs> like there's all yeah. this dancing around. There's no way that I can take you seriously, even if I wanted to. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, and then you have to wonder about the motivations behind it all. And again, and then the conspiracy theories go crazy. Yeah. But I, some I of just, the, what's that? some of them gotta be true. Yeah. I, I try to keep it simple and just point out the stuff that is almost undeniable, that there is a financial interest here to keep us sick, to uh, keep us docile. To we're, I think we're being managed quite like cattle at this point. But when the government has committed itself to lying to you 
mm-hmm. then you've given free reign to all these theories. And why not? Because people are trying to make sense of the world, but their sense-making apparatus is broken. Yeah. Because if it's certainly not what's on TV, that's true. Then people are just left to their own devices to fumble around in the dark. Like that's how, how yeah. do we kill the conspiracy theories that are ridiculous mm-hmm. and investigate the ones that might have merit? But we don't, the thing is that the idea of killing certain theories is the problem now, I think. I think we should let all the theories out there and see what <laughs> actually sticks. Yep. You know, and let people make their own choices. You're absolutely right. And so now we're in the cacophony. It's just a, it's a banging loud noise of every theory is, is valid enough. Yeah. Because there's no way to make sense of it. And that's exactly what people deal with with diet. I mean, it, it, it's all... It's all related. And a lot of this does come down to government regulations and recommendations Yep. that, you know, they have their, uh, it's called my plate now, instead of the food pyramid yeah. we grew up with, which of course the base of the food pyramid was grains that so we had to eat mostly grains, the fats and sweets were all the way at the top fats and mm. sweets. I think were connected together. I, I don't know. Where was meat? It was higher up at the top, but it was a smaller amount than the yeah. bread and that. Thinking back to this is from what the USDA Department Correct. of Agriculture, they, they have specific targets and agendas of their own. They want to sell more grain, I'm sure, in certain certain at certain times. I think they also control meat, though. So I'm sure that they uh, they also try to steer the conversation for meat when they want to and it's convenient. That's actually their mission statement. So if you mm-hmm. look at the USDA's mission statement, it's to wow. support farmers. It is not to provide health information for the U.S. public. There you go. So I didn't even know that. You nailed it. <laughs> if it seems like they're doing that, it's because that is literally in their organizational standards. They, we were t- worried about the farmers who wanted to preserve farmers. So I forget when exactly they were formulated, but that was the goal. And that is what they're doing. You know, yeah. we have the Great Plains, so we can grow tons and tons of crops We're probably better suited for growing uh these crops than most places in the world mm-hmm. i i can think of a couple other but the great plains the breadbasket is almost peerless maybe ukraine but what we have with the prairies in uh the states is just an incredible uh, amount of topsoil and quality uh quality land yeah it's really an unfair advantage for america when it comes to uh topsoil that we inherited but if we turn all of our topsoil into gmo corn and soy Mm -hmm. that we subsidize so we pay for it twice and then we pay with a non-renewable resource like topsoil yeah it's like a, a thousand years for like 11 centimeters wow so yeah, certainly not laying down that much topsoil. So it, it's one of these things where it's finite, just like gas, eventually we'll run out of gas. Mm-hmm. That'll probably be a long time from now. But you know, when it comes down to your meat, <laughs> I get a lot more concerned. Of course. And this ecological stability 
Um, water is another big concern with this heat dome and these heat waves that people have been having. Yeah. If you want water to be in the, in the ground, it needs to be soil. It needs to be alive. It needs to have a living root in it. It needs to be off gassing humidity. Yes. So that it has to have these plants that are supposed to be in the, supposed to be in the ground. Yeah. It's not supposed to have this monoculture. It's just this sea of death, except for this one genetically engineered species covered in chemicals. Hmm. That is not a sustainable ecosystem. Sea and of it, death. That, that, that's a different, uh, different from amber waves of grain. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. And uh, it, it's not one that is going to ecologically support humans in the future Mm-mm. because we need amino acids. We need uh, essential fatty acids and we need uh, a fuel source. Many people have argued that uh, glucose and sugar is a better fuel source. <laughs> um, but us carnivores have uh, deferred to fat yeah. and lipids. And I mean, uh, yeah, you teach his own on the science, but um, kind of. <laughs> I have my very strong prejudices for very good reasons, I think. I do too. I do too. I, I think you can make a case that we are fruit eaters. But um, I think that's where the legitimate science and speculation ends because, you know, we have color vision. Color vision is typically seen in nature through fruitivores. Hmm. However, what fruitivores don't have is a brain like this. (laughs) This brain takes up like 25% of our energy demands. Yeah. So if you're eating enough sugar to support your brain, you know, you're, you're introducing an oxidative stress that's, horrible that's how i feel that's where i say that sugar you can argue for sugar all you want but you are introducing an oxidative stress just like you said exactly and so if you have an energy source that provides for the needs of your brain that uh, doesn't create oxidative stress in fact your a lot of your organs prefer running off of that of that fat of ketones and uh, fatty acids it's more efficient it's 96 ATP, I think, versus, oh man, it's been a while, 67 ATP from glucose molecule. So if you break down over a, my head, anywho. <laughs> so if you break down, um, it's about energy density. So if you mm-hmm. break down a molecule of sugar versus a molecule of fat, you're going to get more uh, adenosine triphosphate, the ATP, the cellular energy. Right. So okay. I think every gram of fat has nine calories versus every gram of carbohydrate has like six. Right. right. Which is so, why when we do the, the half and half, half protein, half fat, we're ending up with more fat. Yeah. So it's an energy density equation. Yeah. So there are more carbon chains on the saturated fat. It is one of the most energy dense things on the planet. So that's one of the reasons that it's so important is that if you're eating, if you're eating adequate fat and you're eating adequate amino acids, um, you have the recipe if, for life. You have the, the bare minimum. Now, the science on vitamins and minerals that you need and electrolytes that you need and the proportions that you need them in is still raging on, even amongst, even amongst the people who are pretty knowledgeable. It's, it's very, very complicated, yeah. um, but the proof is in the pudding. People are surviving 
like yourself and others thriving yes on this all meat diet so it's certainly it's certainly an essential minimum that if you can make shelf stable would allow you to win wars uh visit mars explore other solar systems like you do anything (laughs) anything anything that humans do yeah so that's that's to me the exciting part is the the discovery that we owe a huge us new carnivores owe a huge debt of gratitude to people who have been doing this and pioneering this like yourself uh putting out this content because this discovery is huge for all human beings everywhere yeah it's super important super important for yeah but you can survive off meat and it's something that it sounds unthinkable to so many people to this day it's getting better thankfully people are starting to catch on you know keto is getting more popular and so at this point i can pretty much say yeah i do keto but i don't eat plants there you <laughs> go yeah sounds weird but at least they can connect it yeah it's so funny uh seeing the faces when you order stuff <laughs> um so uh you you have a theater background, so I'm just, I'm, it's driving yeah. me crazy. How, how does that still affect your life? And are you incorporating any of that uh, into your creativity now, stuff like that? So it's helped me with Kickstarter videos. Cool. Remembering okay. my lines and being <laughs> able to, to speak them in, uh, I don't know, a hopeful, a passable way. But uh, it's, uh, I did stage combat. So I did the, okay. the fighting behind the scenes, uh, black t-shirt kind of thing back behind, uh, all the rigging and the lights and the, the equipment. So I kept people safe while making it look vicious. <laughs> right. Cool. Okay. That's a, that's a fun fact of my hobby career that, uh, will never pay anything, but <laughs> no, I think these are, if you abstract any skill enough you can find it's applicable to almost anything in life i think so i loved your um your beautiful drawings of the creepy crawly critters and Thank that you. was fantastic oh the uh, the underbed monsters yes <laughs> yes thanks that I was a lot that of was, fun yeah. that was amazing so <laughs> i uh i really appreciate all of those different um creative expressive things that you do that you know we're more than just meat propagandists you know we're people and we have (laughs) (laughs) diverse interests yeah absolutely we want to we're doing this not just to eat meat we're not doing it just because we enjoy meat we're doing it because it's saved our lives changed our lives and optimized our lives and so what are our lives? What, what, do, what do our lives consist of? Are we going to just, I mean, it seems that so many people now are terrified into living just to be alive, just to survive when we have every opportunity to be thriving. Yes. I mean, that's yeah. exactly how I felt with uh, dysbiosis and they late, they slapped a label on me. Uh, they slapped the PTSD label on me at the VA for but, uh, your, for your gut dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I, I think it was a, I think it was a misdiagnosis. Yeah. I think it was, is dysbiosis. And it was just one of those things that they weren't willing to look into that deeply. In you a know? way, I mean, in a way though, it, it, 
you you were and I guess still are recovering from the yeah a, a kind of stress disorder of the gut after a trauma. Yep. So it is a kind of PTSD for the gut. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's true. It's just uh, the gut brain connection is is really an intense one. Yeah. They ended up putting me on methylphenidate, and uh, you know, so this battle, which is like speed. Mm-hmm. This battle for me to, to eat meat and to live my life and to have creative pursuits and ideas and dreams and visions. It's, it has been one of survival where I've had to fight in order to thrive because the path that I was set upon by this society was one that went straight into a brick wall. Yeah. And so in order to do theater and other to do fun, you know, loving, happy-go-lucky things, you know, it's one where I had to spend almost a decade or more researching this and figuring out why, you know, society's solution uh, didn't work out. What was wrong with the way we were doing things and the things that we were eating was, was right there at the tippy top of what was wrong. Yeah. I feel like you, you are, um, I I, I guess, addressing it in a Let's see. I, I forget exactly how I was going to phrase this. Uh, I had it all set up in my head and it just all fell apart. But um, just the way that you're, I guess, okay, here it is. That It takes an artist's mind to, I think, approach things the way you have. So in most businessmen, they just want that they'll work with that, that, uh, that, that team that wants to uh, maximize profits and you know, pump out junk. Uh, cheap junk uh, at a high profit margin. But I think an artist is more likely to look for quality over quantity. Yes. And and so, yeah, I commend that. I commend you for doing that. Thanks. And I think that's, yeah, of course. And I think uh, that that's what we need now is to think more quality and less quantity. And that would help a lot in a lot of areas of life as a carnivore and as a soldier and seeing the things that I'm seeing with this crazy world we live in, I think it's a matter of life and death. Yes. And so that's a lot of the reason why I get up out of bed in the morning and I try to make this meat bar better, make it more affordable, uh, get our volume of production up. You know, I just got a call that we stocked up in order to make this big transition to this new facility yes, that we got down to our last box. Wow. So a lot of people didn't wait when we were doing the Kickstarter, they mm-hmm. didn't wait for the, they didn't uh, volunteer their, their funds now for a discounted price on the carnivore bar. They would rather have the carnivore bar now at its current price. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Kickstarter just served as a reminder and our sales like quadrupled this month. <laughs> Good. That's and so that's great, but it, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's not what we need to raise funds yeah. to scale up, to do this sustainably um, in a way that, you know, sustains itself um, not only for, you know, the community, but also that it, it, we can at least meet our costs. Yes. You no, know, because that's a that's one of those volumetric things. It's 
if I raise prices and we lower volume, we haven't made any more money. If we lower the cost, but then we, you know, it's like the volume cost per bar has mm-hmm. to has to be in a good place. You could you could do what the uh, cereal companies do and give less cereal and uh, charge the same amount. <laughs> <laughs> we we are making a smaller bar. Yeah, but, but we're charging less for it. Right. Yeah, of course. Because you and your integrity, really. Come on, Philip. Make some money here. <laughs> I'm not a great businessman. I, I'm a passionate believer. And I think that biologically, we are not, we're not concerned about the right things. Mm-hmm. We're not concerned about the, the loss of the ability to make sense of our lives and sense of how the world is structured. And we're not concerned about the whole picture, the ecosystem that makes our lives as humans possible. Yeah. And yet, you know, and, and, and there are so many messages out there that are trying to convince us that the way of life that is, that we know will keep us alive and keep us thriving is the opposite, which is so crazy. So, but, and the thing is that it's been happening that way with fat and other things that we've been eating for so long. Uh, I mean, that we, you know, it was demonized while we were growing up, vilified. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And now the same thing is happening to, I mean, they, they were trying to focus on just the health, the, the, their health lies. Now they're focusing on environmental lies or misinformation, I call it. I, I'll try to call it. <laughs> yeah, it's misinformation both ways. It's yeah. like they, they guessed wrong on what, uh, on what makes you healthy and they didn't, they didn't never go back to fix their mistake. You know, they it's sl- constant. They changed their recommendations, but they didn't, they didn't give an apology like, hey, sorry, we were wrong. And so a lot of people are going off information that's more than 50 years, 50 years old. 50 years wrong sounds good. <laughs> yeah, 50 years wrong, I almost said. But, yeah, the but thing it's is, like, go ahead. I, don't know, uh, just, I was reading the, uh, the dietary recommendations, the dietary guidelines for Americans recently, and they still recommend vegetable oil over butter. They say right. replace butter with vegetable oil. Margarine. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most oxidative, uh, unstable compounds uh, that, that we pass as food here yeah. in America more than any other place. And maybe, and maybe as guilty as sugar for contributing to diabetes, type 2 diabetes. I think it's more. More, you think? Wow. Way more. Because Man. it, there's a uh, theory of obesity that I follow from uh, uh, Peter, I can't say his last name, but from hyperlipid, Dr. Mm. Eads uh, has a video on it. That's really, okay. really great. It's a new hypothesis for obesity. It's a few years old now, but mm. um, essentially it's the adipocyte becomes inflamed because of, res- you know, um, well, it's kind of complicated, but long story short, the simplified version is yeah. the, the signaling of the molecules in the mitochondria um, turn off the adipocyte from getting any fatter if it has saturated fat. Uh, FN ratio, um, it's NADH and F, FADH2. I think that's the chemical compounds. So it's the, the ratio of breaking down the carbons into its, into the subparticles mm-hmm. and those particles being um, broken down further into ATP. So there is a, 
Which is the energy. Exactly. Energy is the ATP. So as the beta oxidation is occurring, um, there's an F and an N ratio and every fat has a different F N ratio. So the takeaway for me is I started getting down this rabbit hole to a point when I realized that beef fat uh, has the FN ratios that I'm looking for, the palmitic acid and the steric acid. And there's been some hubbub about steric acid from uh, the Brad Marshall, the croissant guy. Who I'm puts, not familiar. Well, he <laughs> lost a bunch of weight. The croissants. He, he was eating croissants and losing weight, huh? Yeah, but he had to Wish make I his... Done that. <laughs> he made his he made his croissants without a vegetable in it. Ah, which he had to go to special trouble to find. Yeah, man, I forget. You know, I keep forgetting how many things. Probably all those croissants I ate over the years had lots of vegetable oil, and Everything, so many things do. But French croissants are made with real butter. Yes. So when we think we're eating something that a healthy population ate, we're not because we've changed the lipids. Mm-hmm. Because these lipids that are saturated, they tell fat cells to not get any fatter. They make them insulin uh, resistant, which again, you're saying, well, that's bad. It's like, well, you actually want your fat cells to be disproportionately insulin resistant compared to the rest of your cells. So that means that your sugar stays in your blood and goes to your brain and goes to your eyes and your erythrocytes, your red blood cells, which they are obligate sugar burners. They cannot burn anything else. Mm -hmm. So if your fat cells are insulin resistant and you get some carbohydrate, then your sugar goes to just goes to where it's supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so alternatively, rather than eating sugar, excess sugar, say you're wearing a workout, you're a little stressed. Uh, God forbid you're being chased by a bear. Your body release uh, a glucocorticosteroid cortisol, which elevates your blood sugar. Yes. Then your sugar goes to mainly muscle at that point because you're utilizing your muscles to run, but it goes to deal with whatever the stressor is. I think that happened to Dr. Sean Baker, where he had elevated uh, kind of not not dangerous, but slightly elevated blood sugar. And people were saying, well, you see, the carnivore diet's not working for you. Yeah. He's saying, oh, I think it's more complicated than that. And what I is think that's what you're for- describing. His metrics for oxidative stress were way down. Yeah. Everything was, was really great. His testosterone was a little low, but his testosterone expression was extremely high. So yeah. it's like. This happens with ketones too. People look for ketones. Meanwhile, their body's using all the ketones so they don't show up in their urine or blood. In the end of the day, we're not looking for a better ruler. Hmm. You know, we don't want the ruler to improve. We're using the metric to see if we can improve our lives. And if you're improving your life and the ruler is weird, it's like, well, I don't really want the measurement. I don't want the number on the spreadsheet. I want a good life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the only measurement that really matters. Wow. Yeah. So that, that, that really, I think that, that sums up your, your working philosophy so well that you're taking this again with the, the complicated principles, boiling it down to a very simple applicable thing that that's going to enhance life. That's the whole point of it. It's not to get lost in the weeds with all that stuff. Exactly. And I've, I've gotten into the, the weeds, but I've gotten a little less uh, fastidious as I used to be. I used to be able to rattle all this stuff and say all the chemical names, just, but You're doing pretty the, well in my opinion, but the utility of it starts to wane after a certain point. 
Yes. You know, you could be reading uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Ben Vickman and all these guys and they're getting into the, they're getting into all the, the nitty gritty. And it's like, at the end of the day, um, we have this epidemic of unhealth, of disease. And the single thing that looks like a warning sign to me is the seed oil, the use of seed oil and processed food. As soon as we, you know, moved from, you know, World War, pre-World War II to post-World War II, there was a huge shift in like how our society was organized. Yes. Instead of one person working and one person holding down the house, making meals, there's now two people working and we're eating whatever crap we have time for. We're yeah. TV dinners. We are processed food junkies. I think TV dinners came out in the 50s, 40s, 50s. Yep. Mm -hmm. post-war era it is this you know now everyone's working so to to have the same to have the same uh wage power now it takes two people to work instead of one there's this whole economic issue with that mm -hmm. um but it's conflated with this convenience thing so another reason for the carnivore bar was convenience it's yes. like who has time to to do all the things but the thing that i get uh stuck with is thawing meat yes it's like ah dang it i'm hungry right now mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's in the freezer frozen solid i i've run into that and it's not fun <laughs> no no it's not and then you're and then you're cooking it in some suboptimal way it's yeah. i've seen people put it in the air fryer air fryers you know what you mean a whole chunk i you know i did that once i think with a, a chunk of frozen ground beef yeah, I think I just put it right in there because I had yeah, I hadn't thought anything out, and it, it, I think it turned out okay. You know, it was yeah. still beef. If you go out to eat, it's covered in seed oil, almost oh. guaranteed, unless you ask special. If yeah. you eat at home, you have to prepare, you have to think ahead. If you're trying to take your lunch to work, there's this whole convenience nightmare. Yeah, that I, uh, I've been drying meats myself, but there's a process to it. Yeah, and you got to think ahead. You got to yes. be. And then you won't, won't have that cut that you got before. And then you'll have to rearrange. You're like, well, can I do the same thing? Well, this is a little fattier. It's going to take a little longer. Yeah. The shelf, if you, um, if you do jerky and you do jerky at home and you make it too fatty, mm -hmm. the shelf stability will absolutely plummet. Yeah, it, I, I, people keep asking me, how long does your jerky last? And I say, it doesn't really last long enough for me to know, but I don't think it'll last long because I do leave big chunks of fat on there. And that's, there's two problems in that. One, it's too tasty. <laughs> <laughs> and then second, you know, you're getting that fat heated for a long period and it's denaturing and rincidifying and oxidizing. Oh, that's, I didn't so, even think of that. Okay. It's, I didn't even know that was the case. I thought it was just drying out. Yeah. It's think about it like um, a shoestring that's kind of unraveling. Mm -hmm. you know, the unraveled oxidative stuff. So this is another big uh, component of high PUFA fats is like, if you have a seed oil, like canola oil, mm -hmm. um, it is hyper, hyper unstable. And what is, it's been through several processes to make it the color that it is. It's been bleached. It's been congealed into this like dark tar substance 
So it's been bleached, it's been refined, it's been um, deodorized because it actually smells bad. Yeah. So it smells bad to human beings. So we fixed that by deodorizing it. And now this waste product is food product and now it can be used for everything. Yeah. It's so disgusting. It, and it's to- toxic sludge. It came originally out of, uh, and if you're talking about vegetable oil, that came mostly out of um, industrial byproducts. Mm-hmm. They were, they were um, processing cotton and said, hey, we can t- use this cotton. We can sell this cottonseed oil, not just as industrial lubricant. We can sell it as an alternative fat. Yeah. And that was uh, made possible through the end of the Civil War and the outlawing of slavery and the invention of the cotton gin. Yeah. Because it was too difficult to collect the cotton seeds. But the gin had a little canister that collected all the seeds and then you could start to store the seeds as waste product and you're like huh maybe we'll find something useful to do with this later anything that maximizing again with the profits they just want to make as much money as they can off of the cheapest thing they can sell that's the the road to success from the rockefellers the standard oil oh with the rock you want to get conspiratorial here (laughs) well i don't know it's up to you it's your channel I'm just, uh, I'm half joking, but I mean, of course, if you want to, but um, uh, I don't even know how much longer you want to chat here, but uh, it's, uh, this is, this is, I mean, such a great conversation and I really appreciate, uh, yeah, well, all the things we're discussing. So, I mean, if you, if you want to go to, you know, something more, uh, you know, kind of controversial toward the end, we can. Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. I mean, one I felt of the like things- you were holding back before, so <laughs> <laughs> it's like and cut <laughs> but um let's see if, if zoom cuts us off even the even the very simple nature of what rockefeller did with standard oil is he took a a market with kerosene that had 40 percent waste 60 percent mm. of the oil turned into kerosene and 40 percent turned into sludge that they were pouring in local rivers yeah. And so he found a way to turn paraffin wax, turn that into paraffin wax and turn that into um, all kinds of Vaseline and different petroleum products. Yes. And monetize the 40% that was being wasted and capitalize yes. the market. You know, and, and so to this that, day, we use Vaseline on our lips. Exactly. And so he has really done something important there by utilizing a waste product. But that history of trying to find uses for waste products to make your business profitable is a time-honored tradition. Yes. However, the industrial processes that we endeavored in in World War I and World War II made us really, really adept at making weapons. And several things that have negatively affected our health were by trying to monetize waste products like uh, fluoride, for example, Mm. that is a byproduct of refining aluminum. So our B-52 bombers that we were sending overseas to defeat the Nazis, which Mm -hmm. I'm glad we did. Yeah. We had all these waste products in the form of fluoride. Mm. And so I didn't even know, I've never heard of this connection. So a lot of those things, like the cotton gin, mm-hmm. were these big geopolitical shifts in the way that the world was structured and created new industries. Yeah. So as soon as you don't have uh, labor 
to pick apart the cotton by hand, you have a new machine. You have a new machine that revolutionizes an industry, creates a waste product. And then you have a war, which, you know, you're making munitions and you're having another waste product. And so you're trying to make your businesses stay afloat. And so you're just kind of monetizing more and more waste. And that's essentially where we are with corn yes, and soy, where we, we can make so much of it so efficiently that the prices are rock bottom. So the only way to make money off of it is to do it with multi-million dollar sized operations. And don't forget the subsidies. Yep. And then we're making that even lower with the subsidies and we're just tilting into this problem that has no solution. Mm. And it does have a solution. It's just (laughs) not what they're offering. They say they want more of what they're doing, more centralization, more of their even more. I think they want more factories to make more processed foods and, and to save us. Right. And not to not to make more money, but to save us from ourselves. Well, it's it's that consolidation in every field, whether it's, you know, I heard that people are talking about, I forget what company it was, buying up 21st Century Fox. And mm. Disney is buying up as much as other little companies it can. And there's a there are these charts that the people post on Instagram and elsewhere that it's like there's these one one company and then mm. like 80 different cereals and 80 different uh, candy bars are all under like this one macro company. So like handful of companies own everything. I was uh, yesterday, I was going through the, uh, the news on Google for a uh, meet and I saw one of I the, watched. you did that. <laughs> cool. I'm glad you caught that. Um, but that somehow the name Mitsubishi came into the picture. I don't know how, but Mitsubishi is somehow connected to one of these uh, fake, I think the, the, the fake meat thing, the uh, cultured meat, cultured yeah. beef. That was like a, the five or six entries was, was fake meat, fake meat, recall for fake meat, <laughs> fake meat. Like, oh yeah, the oh news was, the, most of the news about meat was about fake meat, uh, plant-based meat, cultured meat. Uh, and and um but then I found one story near the top that was a nice little, you know, human interest story about, uh, uh, I think it was Joe, Joe's, I, I, I'm going to mess it up, but uh, he's a, you know, he has a smoked meat uh, truck yeah. in, in Cleveland. And uh, so that, I mean, and he says they sell out every day. That's good. I mean, their people are eating their meat. They are. And that's, that's a, a great thing about human beings is we are hard to control despite uh, all these insidious forces and their best efforts, um, we're an unruly bunch and (laughs) thank God. So I think that that's what's keeping a lot of these um, dystopian futures at bay for now. Um, But we could always, we could always use more alert and aware people paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it would be a lot like prohibition, though, in, in alcohol prohibition, if they really do crack down on meat that hard. I mean, sure, it'll be more expensive and maybe some of the meat sources will be a little more dubious sometimes. But I think that humans are always going to fight to get that meat, just like we always fought. The, if we fought that hard for alcohol and, and weed, I think we, we can do the same for meat. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've heard of uh, black market meat in uh, India and mm. different places like that where right 
carnivores have to go to some extreme measures and they get it done. Yeah. Yep. And that's, uh, it's really interesting being, um, somebody who sells meat, uh, a shelf stable and travel size meat. It's like mm -hmm. our fans get it. Yes. Like when we had a crisis last year, uh, it was hard to keep it in stock because like the carnivores instinctively know how valuable it is. So it was one of those things where I didn't, I was trying not to sell it. Yeah. I was trying to like, be quiet. Don't make any mentions <laughs> of social media. Like we can't sell anymore, right. but it, it's a kettle and a, not a kettle, but a cart and a horse, you know, <laughs> which, which comes first, the demand right. for something or the something. Yes. <laughs> and it's one of those things where we would try to scale up to make it a, not only something I'm incredibly passionate about, but a viable business uh, in a world that's set up for this hyper consolidation and profit making. Yes. I'm not trying to make profit. I'm trying to make value. Yes. And I think that's what, that's, what's going to keep you around and keep what you do strong. Uh, it's having a, and I try to, or I, I try to encourage that for people's way of life overall. I mean, their, their diet, their, everything they do, everything anyone does, I think should be built on a foundation of solid principles that are actually driving you and, and, and your passion. And you, there should be passion behind it. If there's no passion, then maybe something's missing. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if you've been uh, following a lot of the Bitcoin stuff, uh, not super closely lately because I got kind of fatigued from seeing it go up and down and it's been going down, down, down a lot, but I am just trying to hodl and stay, <laughs> just hold and stay put. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of people that I think are kind of missing the whole point of Bitcoin and mm -hmm. what it was designed to do. I, I was very excited about it in uh, 2009 after the crash. I barely I knew was, about it back then. When I was digging ditches, I, I thought it was a fascinating idea, but I was, you know, digging ditches. I didn't have any spare capital. Yeah, and back so, then, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it really cheap back then? It was really cheap. If I had just bought a few cents, I would have been doing well. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, people looking at it now, they're inventing a new coin every week. They're mm -hmm. watching them go sky high and, and just these pump and dump schemes People are losing billions of dollars. Yeah. It's just, they're making Bitcoin a treacherous environment. And like we, we used to accept Bitcoin to buy carnivore bars because oh. I wanted to support it. But when it got up to like 60 or so, nobody wanted to part with any Bitcoin. Yeah. And then it plummeted down again. It was like, we went ahead and sold the Bitcoin we did have as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, when it was at high because no one wanted to buy any carnivore bars with it because they went, they thought it was going to the moon even further. Yeah. So you can't have a currency without having more stability. Right. And I, I still think it will go to the moon, but yeah. the trouble is, is if we live in a society that collapses and Bitcoin is worth a million dollars a coin. Yeah how much will meat be? <laughs> you know, it's all, it is definitely relative. The, the, yeah, the question is, and I, I think about this a lot. I, I mean, probably more than is healthy. If 
everything is just done. If, if, if there's no power, no, no, I can't go to the supermarket. What do we do? And yes, <laughs> the carnivore bar is one excellent choice, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we, where we have to go. I think at this point is to think, really think ahead. And um, I mean, I think we, we owe, just like we owe Alex Jones a lot of apologies, we owe preppers a lot of apologies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree. It's, um, it is looked down upon. Preppers have been looked down upon for decades. Yeah. And conspiracy theorists have been looked down at for decades. But we're finding out all kinds of weird stuff um, last couple of years. You know, like UFOs, yeah. probably real. I mean, it's so bizarre how that's being think about, think about how many people's lives we ruined and made fun of and lampooned. Yeah. And it's like, we have this special way of dismissing things that are inconvenient for us mm -hmm. and oversimplifying into this algorithmic thinking of, of right or left, you know, are you on my team or not this rigid tribalism or like these biases towards things that are natural or things that are unnatural. It's like the world is too complex for that. You have to, you have to use your mind. You have to think for yourself. Yeah. But we've been, I think, trained to fear that complexity. Yeah. It's like, no, just grab your shovel, get started, start somewhere. Yeah. This is the, it's, it's full of com the world. The universe is full of complexity, but our job is pretty simple. We just yeah. have to engage with it on, in a very real simple natural way uh expressing our 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 heritage as animals <laughs> that's how i see it i'm a big fan of uh jordan peterson yeah Are is that familiar? him in the back there is that it a, is i was thinking is that a <laughs> those are suspenders <laughs> um but yeah the if you speak the truth what follows uh is habitable order hmm. that's you know, one of his core ideas is that if you engage with your journey, truthfully, um, the best possible reality that can be will be. Yes. It's not saying that's not the same thing as everything's going to be great. It's, right. No promises. It's that's going to be better than if it was terrible and you were lying. Yes. So yes. I love what you are doing and what other carnivores are doing, being, you know, just being frank and honest about your story. Like, the snacking and the cheese sagas and the pork rinds and all the different <laughs> things that you're trying. It's like, well, you're changing up your macros, you're doing different things. It's, it's so reassuring to hear someone just speak the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I'm so glad to be uh, helping to do that. So thank you. And I think that's what we all need to do is just keep sharing. That's why I'm trying to, uh, I try to do these, uh, chats, you know, with fellow carnivores and other free thinkers just to help reassure our respective tribes and our, our, um, shared tribes of the veracity of the, the validity of what we're preaching and practicing. So that's, uh, I mean, you're, 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 uh, practicing what you preach. I mean, you're more than practicing what you preach. You're, you're, manifesting what you preach and that's wonderful i hope so uh it's it's definitely um you know i was a i was a big fan of peterson i was trying to get my life back into order 
or some kind of semblance of less suffering. And, uh, you know, finding something meaningful to do was, was the cure that was laid out by, um, by those lectures. And so, you know, I, I sought out like, what's, what's a way that I could be useful and that I could contribute. And so I went back to school to be a medic. Yes. And then, uh, I was standing in an ER. I had recently like a couple weeks into carnivore, um, 2018 and I was doing these shifts. I was doing these 12 hour shifts in the ER and there was a free cake and there was a free pizza mm -hmm. and we're on our feet for 12 hours in the middle of the night. And there's a vending machine with, uh, some very, very heavily processed, uh, jerky with wheat and soy. Wow. And it was, it was in a tiny little container like this. Yeah. So it had no fat on it. It had a little bit of sugar, a little bit of wheat, a little bit of soy and some meat. Yeah. And it was like, huh? Like, I don't know. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> I don't know how to be an adult. Like here I am trying to make something of myself. I was running out the GI bill irresponsibly, just <laughs> like trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, trying to deal with this dysbiosis. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a medic. I'm going to use the skills that God gave me to, to, you know, be less useless. <laughs> and as soon as I did, and I started my carnivore journey, I was like, I can't, the hmm. tools don't exist for me to do 12 hours here, unless I'm fasting every single shift, doing it's all this scary, high, high stress stuff. And I look around and every patient has carb related or vegetable oil related injury. And every practitioner does too. Yeah. That's where we share our stories. Absolutely. And I think it is uh, a very powerful and not insignificant uh, gesture to just simply report the truth mm -hmm. and to encourage other people in a positive way to take responsibility of their lives. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Well, Philip. Thanks so much for being on the meat of it. This has been an outstanding conversation. I think people are going to really benefit from, I think, your really unique blend of expertise and pragmatism. Because, well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. My thanks again to Philip Meese, creator of The Carnivore Bar, for a fun and informative conversation. You can learn more and order your own carnivore bars like I do at carnivorebar.com. And you can find all my links at themeatofit.com. Special thanks to my supporters on Patreon. Kevin, Jeffrey, Nate, Matt, Todd, Mary, Adrian, Jordan, Grigori, my dad, and MJ Armstrong. I hope that all of you are finding ways to stay naturally healthy on the go, like carnivore bars. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll see you again soon.